Coming at you from the We Dessert Studio in Houston, Texas. You're listening to The Weekly Brew with Austin Statton, Kevin Cook, and Jeremy Paxton. It's time to sit back, relax, and be informed. Welcome to episode 47 of the Weekly Brew Podcast. My name is Austin Staten. I'm joined this week by Kevin Cook, Jeremy Paxton, and Dolores Lozano. And we've actually got a pretty fun show planned for you today. We've got two great interviews, the first being with Mike Meltzer and Seth Payne of Mad Radio. We go into uh, the entertainment business, I guess, uh, a little bit about sports and use in their careers. I think you're really going to enjoy that content. Also, we have a great breakdown of the Major League Baseball draft and kind of the Astros farm system with Angel Verdejo, who is a beat reporter for the Houston Astros. It's going to be two great interviews that you're going to see here just in a few minutes. But uh, for those that are listening right now, I just want to be clear that we are recording this podcast on Sunday morning. And unfortunately, Sunday morning, we woke up to tragedy as uh, 50 people have been killed at Pulse nightclub in Orlando, Florida, and currently more than 50 others are injured. Uh, Details are still coming out right now. There are some indications that this could be uh, related to terrorism, uh, but it is also clear that uh, this took place at Pulse nightclub, which is an LGBT-friendly nightclub, and so uh, there's just so many dynamics going on right now. Um, There's so much hate in the world going on, and uh, it's just an absolutely tragic event uh, to see what went down in Orlando. And this is actually the second significant shooting in Orlando this weekend. Uh, If you guys watch The Voice, uh, Christina Grimmy, who finished third in season six of The Voice, uh, was shot after performing a concert. So it's two senseless tragedies happening over the weekend in Orlando. And uh, I hate that we have to talk about guns and shooting and terrorism on the podcast. I wish we didn't have to do that. I wish we could just talk about sports, comedy, news. I I don't know. It's just... It's kind of depressing to wake up to this Sunday mornings, but I'm curious to hear kind of your initial reactions. Well, what happened in Orlando is a display that irrational hate and disdain for humanity is still a real thing in America and in the world. So it was really sad to wake up and see those news, especially after several shootings this past week. Certainly our hearts go out to the to, to the victims and their families. Um, I think with details being forthcoming, I'm going to suspend any any commentary I have about uh, the perpetrator or his motivations, but um, it's certainly horrible to see. I mean, I don't think there's been a, that significant of a loss of life here in the U.S. from something, you know, allegedly related to terrorism in some time. So um, I don't know. It's, it's horrible, and uh, it's really heartbreaking to wake up and see that this morning. Um, but uh, I don't know. We'll, uh, we'll just have to stay tuned and see what comes out of it. Kind of interesting. Uh, typically, when things like this happen, there are always hot takes that are on Twitter. And uh, I'm just going to read a few tweets here. Um, we're going to first look at the two presidential candidates. Um, Hillary Clinton tweeted this morning that she woke up to hear the devastating news from Florida. As we wait for more information, my thoughts are with those affected by this horrific act. Donald Trump sent out two tweets. The first one he sent out was uh, very early this morning. He said, really bad shooting in Orlando. Police investigating possible terrorism. Many people dead and wounded. He followed up with another tweet saying, horrific incident in Florida. Praying for all the victims and their families. When will this stop? When will we get tough, smart, and vigilant? So I think that's a actually a reasonable comment from Donald Trump. But there's one more tweet that I want to read before. I'm going to let Kevin jump in here. Uh, Dan Patrick, who is the lieutenant governor for the state of Texas, uh, tweeted out at 7 a.m. this morning, uh, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. 
uh, obviously an ill-timed tweet. And uh, I, I'm just assuming for somebody that has a little bit of a job that deals with social media, I'm assuming this was a scheduled tweet. And if you look at Dan Patrick's Twitter feed, he typically does this on Sunday. But somebody on his team should have known to unschedule this. It's very insensitive at the time uh, of what went out. He later tweeted a different verse uh, 30 minutes later, uh, Psalm 37, 39, which reads, the salvation of the righteous comes from the Lord. He is a stronghold in a time of trouble. So obviously he was made aware of this situation in his ill-advised tweet. Very. Has it been deleted? Um, I, I don't have it pulled up, actually. Uh, well, and, and don't be modest. Uh, you're, you don't have a little job that deals with social media. You've got a real big job that deals with social media in a big way. So I like the way you sort of downplayed your, uh, your influence and importance there. Well, to be fair, my job is actually media affairs, and I do our content creation. And so there's a little aspect to social media. So when I say I have a little role in social media, like it's, it's a small role. I would describe you as a maven, a social media maven. <laughs> Um, but yeah, no, obviously very sad. And I do agree that that is, I mean, just, I can almost not imagine a worse message to send out. Like you mentioned, seven o'clock on the dot kind of suggests probably a scheduled tweet. He does this frequently, but just what uh, a horrible message to send in the wake of a tragedy. And you've got to be on top of that sort of stuff. Careers have ended for less than that. But, um, this guy does seem to be sort of, uh, um, unassailable, at least with his tea party and, uh, and right wing constituency, people really don't care. Uh, about sensitivity as much, I think. But uh, yeah, certainly uh, hearing that sort of reasonable take from Donald Trump is astonishing, which just goes to show the depth of this tragedy that it can sort of turn someone even like Donald Trump to um, to a reasonable, understandable stance. Um, I think it just demonstrates and throws into relief what uh, an absurd tragedy it is. If I were to reread both of those tweets without giving you the politician's names, if I would assume that the Hillary Clinton tweet was probably a Donald Trump tweet, and I would have assumed the Donald Trump tweet was probably a Hillary Clinton tweet. So very interesting to see how both of those candidates uh, took to social media to explain everything. Yeah, it actually begs the question, what's the huge difference between them besides presentation and style? I mean, I think a lot of voters are really upset um, with the choices that they have, which is why other candidates in the race are sort of taking up in the polls a little bit. People who would never historically have a chance um, at getting past uh, the single digits in any one poll. I mean, we have what Gary Johnson, who's the libertarian candidate, taking up in the poll, uh, in the polls here. So um, this whole race, um, not to completely segue from Twitter tragedies, but um, into the politic, into the political realm. Um, it, it, it is interesting uh, how similar Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton have historically been, and um, or you know they try to paint themselves with very different now but i think hillary has a better record with women in terms of how she treats women uh some might beg to differ with that depending on um bill clinton's history with women and how she reacted but that's uh, that aside i think um if we're looking at the current political landscape um the the thing that like i can think about most here in the past week was the twitter spat between donald trump and hillary clinton was actually really funny um on both of them i think the last uh tweets that made the headlines where Hillary Clinton tweeted out, delete your account, and Donald Trump tweeted out, how long did it take your staff of 823 people to think that up, and where are your 33,000 emails that you deleted? Which I thought was pretty, was, you know, it was pretty witty, but then again, you know, it's it's Twitter, so I'm not taking that seriously when I go to the polls. I just think it's comical. I, I, I love that uh, it, you've got two polarizing candidates right now that a lot of people, whether you're a Republican or Democrat, don't like. 
And I think a lot of people want like a viable third party candidate, and there isn't one in Gary Johnson. Uh, I, you know, he, I don't think he stands a chance to get elected, but that's the system that we live in right now, the society that we live in. Uh, but I can tell you what I'm really looking forward to. I'm looking forward to those political debates between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. I mean, I don't care if you like politics or not. That's going to be must-see television. I mean, we're talking gigantic ratings for Fox News, CNN, whoever hosts those debates. But my goodness, that's going to be uh, you know an ad salesman's dream trying to sell advertising for that. It's going to be a political Super Bowl. I mean, without a doubt. Yeah, for and sure. I mean. The, what, what's, what is so funny about this is like uh, if Gary Johnson actually ticks up to a certain amount in the polls, I believe that he gets he might be able to participate in one of those debates. Yeah, that's actually true. And if he gets more than 10 percent in the general election, he uh, him and I guess the Libertarian Party actually get federal funding, which is pretty significant for the growth of a third party movement. And I think that's something that our generation kind of wants, uh, because at least from the way that I kind of view things, I think that. Uh, you know, conservatives have their own mindset, like fiscally conservative, uh, socially conservative, you know, liberals, obviously, a little bit of a different, but I think that there are some people out there, especially in our generation that are, you know, fiscally conservative, but more socially liberal. And with that being said, I don't know that there's a party that fits that millennial mindset. I think that this election is going to change the way American politics looks in the next you know 10 15 20 years i think it's going to be interesting to see how uh, america responds especially when uh, one of the two polarizing figures actually does get elected in november gary johnson is fine i don't have any problem with him personally i uh, samantha b had him on her show full frontal and her comment was i think i love and hate every other thing you say so i tend to be the same i agree with about half of his platform and policies but boy if you get him on a stage next to hillary and donald how likable is he going to seem it's like when you go party with a guy who's a little bit shorter than you in order to make you look taller or i've heard that some women take out you know less attractive friends in order to make themselves look more attractive it's going to be that kind of an idea in relief next to hillary and donald he is going to look like one of the most likable people on the planet <laughs> That's a pretty pretty powerful take, Kevin. I uh, I think you just nailed it on the head there. But uh, yeah, I think it's going to be interesting to see if we do have three candidates in uh, an actual debate that hasn't happened since Ross Perot back in what the nineteen ninety two election. Uh, but I, I I just can't wait to see Hillary and Donald, and obviously both of them are going to be choosing their vice presidential candidates here in the next few weeks. There are a lot of rumblings that uh, Elizabeth Warren could be Hillary Clinton's vice. Love president. it. Yeah, there's there's rumors that she could be. The VP pick. Uh, I think Donald Trump is still playing everything close to the vest or actually trying to find somebody that would want that job. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, a lot of stuff coming up as we gear up toward the conventions. And let's not forget, Gary Johnson has the best Twitter hashtag at the moment, which is hashtag feel the Johnson. Oh my God. Oh, really? Yeah, that. that's, that's his Twitter hashtag. Feel, it's not music. feel the burns. Bernie's out. It's feel the Johnson. That is, that is actually more amusing than I would have thought. So I'll give him and his staff credit for that. But in other big news this week, uh, NBA Finals, and just again to clarify, we are recording prior to Game 5, and we're just going to go ahead and assume that the Golden State Warriors win this game. <laughs> uh, they absolutely dominated uh, You know, the first two games of the series, dropped Game 3, but came out with a vengeance in Game 4. And we assume, when you were listening to this podcast, that much of the same happened in Game 5. And the Golden State Warriors are back-to-back -back NBA champions. But, uh, Kevin, you're an NBA guy. What were some of your impressions on this series? Well, uh, there's a lot of things going on in the world of basketball in terms of people's perceptions. Kevin Durant's a big story, obviously, and he'll continue to be, particularly as the finals wind up here. But uh, people just absolutely, um, what can I say, crapping on LeBron? Uh, people, people 
dumping on LeBron. That's gross. I shouldn't say that. But people who have an issue with the way LeBron plays, and I don't understand it because he really has given all he can to that team, and I don't understand the uh, amount of criticism. Actually, Angel Verdejo, if you go follow him on Twitter, A.H. Verdejo, our uh, guest later in the show, he actually got into a fight with people about LeBron. But uh, such a polarizing figure. I don't like LeBron, but I certainly appreciate his talent. But, um, boy, you talk about the first two games of that series. Steph and Clay did not play well. Game three as well. So you've had to figure they were going to get going eventually, and game four they certainly did, and that, uh, that was pretty much lights out. So where does, where does Cleveland go? from here my, my theory is that lebron in sort of a dirk like move begins to take less money less than the max so that he can allocate more funds to bring more key guys to cleveland kevin love was uh you know he plays gm in that team sort of his pick obviously did not work out with his team i don't think that um i don't think he's being utilized properly and uh, did the team a favor by sitting out game three with a concussion but uh yeah so i think that the future for the cleveland cavaliers is lebron's there with him and he's going to begin to take less money so they can sign more players on We're going to be the Associated Press here. We're going ahead and projecting that the Golden State Warriors are going to win the 2015-2016 NBA championship for the second straight year. Congratulations to Steph Curry for his back-to-back MVPs and uh, the NBA title. But uh, we just also want to remind you guys that uh, you can follow all of our work each week on social media. Just go ahead and follow Weekly Brewcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. We post great content there. You can also find our work on weeklybrewcast.com. Also, we want to give a shout-out to our sponsors, We Desserts. You can find them at 3411 Kirby here in Houston. All listeners of the Weekly Brew Podcast can go pick up some fresh baked goods uh, and you get 10% off your listener of the Weekly Brew Podcast. And actually at the end of the show, stay tuned for that. But we've got a great interview with Jen. She's going to tell you what's going on at the bakery, kind of her roles, uh, what products you should get if you're a first time visitor. But uh, we've got a packed show on deck. Again, we've got Mike Meltzer and Seth Payne from Mad Radio at Sports Radio 610 here in Houston. Uh, It's a great listen. I hope you guys enjoy that. Also, we've got a great Astros talk and uh, kind of diving into the farm system and the recent draft picks for the MLB draft and where the Astros went with that regards. Also, we've got an update on Carlos Correa and his injury situation. All that's going to be coming from Angel Verdejo of the Houston Chronicle. But as always, we've got a packed show on deck, so it's time to sit back, relax, and be informed. You're listening to The Weekly Brew. Joining us now on The Weekly Brew podcast are Mike Meltzer and Seth Payne of Mad Radio, which can be found on Sports Radio 610 in Houston during the morning drive from 6 to 10 a.m., Guys, we appreciate you for joining us this week. And before we get started, some recent changes at 610 bumped your show from the midday to the morning drive. How are you two adjusting to the new time slot and the early arrival in the studios? It's a, I'm kind of surprised. I think Mike, who's not a morning person at all, but maybe perhaps because he's an actual radio professional, is handling it a lot better than I am. <laughs> I'm, I'm always up at like 4.30 or 5 a.m. anyway, but there's a big difference between just going through blog posts and, and trying to read at 5.30 or 6 a.m. and actually formulating a take and talking on air at 6 a.m. So Mike's been a lot better than that. But other than that, I love just having the rest of the day to watch baseball games or, or do whatever else I want. So that part of it's nice. I'm still adjusting to, to being lucid at 6 a.m. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that's uh, one of the challenging things that I've found is that you know, you start the show no matter what time of year, it's 6 a.m., and you look outside, it's like pitch dark, and by 7, especially nowadays, it's like, you feel like it's, it's a totally different show because it's light outside, it's bright, and you can, like, see all the cars on the road, and so you kind of feel like you're starting the show in the middle of the, of the night, and I guess the, the tough thing is that, you know, for me, my schedule is basically, I'll watch the end of, let's say, an Astros game or the NBA Finals, and then I'll, like, once that game ends, I'll shut it off, I'll go to bed, I'll, like, wait for 10 minutes to go to sleep. And so I wake up, you know, relatively close to showtime. There's not, like, as much time compared to the days. 
to really fully formulate what you're about to say. So sometimes you go on at six and you're like, well, I watched all this stuff. I know what's going on. But sometimes it takes a little bit longer for a longer to kind of like digest your thoughts and feel like, all right, now I really know what I'm going to say. You know what I noticed too, Mike? I I feel bad now because I used to listen to the morning show and they might be talking about a topic and I'd be thinking, Nick, how do you Nick, how do you not know that such and such wrote this or somebody said that? And now I realize that oh, okay, because because he got four hours of sleep and he had to go to bed right after right at the end of the show. So now a lot of times in the morning show you'll you'll have your opinions and you'll give your takes and you'll you'll feel very strongly about something. Then you get off the show and you read a couple of things and you realize, oh, wow, I, I, I really wish I had known that at 8 a.m. because I completely disagree with everything I just said. So you two guys came from completely different backgrounds. I mean, Mike, you came from uh, Syracuse, great school. Uh, it pr- produced a lot of talent in terms of radio communications. And Seth, obviously, you spent time with the uh, the Texans and Jaguars. I, I guess if you're, you know, how, how does it work just pairing up you two as a team? I mean, you guys have great chemistry on the air. What does that process look like in terms from, you know, when you guys started working together a few years ago to what the show has become now, one of the highest rated shows in the city? Well, Seth can definitely talk, can definitely talk about, like, the uh, how it started, you know, three years ago. Uh, because, you know, when Brad left the show, the previous iteration of the show, Mad Radio, like, my previous boss, uh, Gavin and I both felt like, we, like Seth was, like, the obvious guy to hire for the station because he had been on with Josh Innes and Rich Lord, and he had done, like, a really good job, and he was funny, and obviously he played football and the whole thing. I think that with radio, like, it kind of, it kind of, it, it's all about time. Like, we have, you know, a new show on the station now with In the Loop in the Middays, and sometimes I see on social media or text or whatever, people are like, oh, I don't, I don't like this show, I don't like that show. And I'm like, what people don't realize sometimes, I don't know, I don't know how TV is, but with radio, People think that we've been doing a show like in some secret lab for you know a year, and then it's like unveiled on the air. Not often the case. Like when Seth and I started the show three years ago, us working together. I mean, I don't know. I'm not even sure how much radio we've done. I think we. I think Seth has filled in maybe like once or twice for Brad previously, and that was about it. And so it takes like six months or so to really form the chemistry of what that show is actually going to be. Yeah, and I let's see. I had been living in upstate New York, and, uh, you know, I'd call into some Houston stations every now and then. John Granado used to call me once a week uh, to, to go on his show, I think when Sean Pendergast was with him for a good chunk of that time. And, and John actually really encouraged me to get back into the business, and I was at a point in my life where I was a few years out of the NFL. I was, I was still trying to figure out what I was going to do when I grew up, you know, and John really encouraged me, so I just decided one month that I was going to come down to Houston and meet everybody at all the stations and kind of just take a grand tour and and see if there was something or an opportunity for me. And Gavin Spittle, who was the program director at the time, and Mark Vandermeer, who was leaving to go full-time with the Texans at the time, really jumped on it and, and pursued me, and I started out working part-time during that season. And I really, uh, you know, I... I jumped into it and treated it like I was getting ready for the combine or getting ready to go play in the NFL. And I really I, I paid attention and I listened to the station all the time and kind of used that 2012 season as an audition. So when Brad Davies left the show, Gavin Spittle by that point, having seen me work part-time during the entire fall, 
gave me that opportunity to go in with Mike. And Mike and I, Mike and I had done one show together at the Texans luncheon, Mike. And, uh, oh, yeah, and I, I remember, yeah. yeah, yeah. And I remember this is like I, the, the the every time I did a show with Mike, either that time or before we went on full time, the extent of the pep talk I got from Mike was, well. Let's see what happens. And then there we go. I'm, I'm, used, to, I'm used to like Tom Coughlin giving PowerPoint presentations and everything, and I'm, I'm kind of looking for that. But you, one thing you learn about Mike over time is Mike is extremely well prepared all the time, and there's not necessarily a whole lot of nonsense other than just what goes on on the show. We have a really good relationship before the show, after the show, if we have an issue with each other during the show, if we get in an argument during the show, or if one of us, you know, feels like uh, the other one should have done something differently, we're real open about talking about it afterwards. And I think that's that's helped a lot over the course of three years. We've really figured out a way to kind of recognize problems and attack them head on without getting sensitive about it. Well, that's good advice because uh, Austin mostly subtweets me in order to help tweak my performance. So I think I'll take a page out of, their out of their book, Austin. But you know, it's interesting you talk about that. We spend a lot of time thinking about what makes for good content. How do you put together a good show? And I think you guys uh, are our favorite, at least my favorite. Certainly, you're articulate, you're amusing, you know, you're on point. You discuss other stuff as well. But it, we've heard things like you need conflict to have good radio. You got to manufacture arguments and stuff like that. And it doesn't seem like you guys do that. Do you think that that conventional wisdom of you have to have fights on air, uh, whether or not you mean them is, is just wrong uh well here's the thing I, I think that a lot of where that comes from is like a first take on, on espn right so what i i don't know if i should criticize them or not because i'm trying to if i was in a situation where you have two or three people on a tv show and there's probably more like immediate preparation like right before a tv show than a radio show where the preparation is sort of like more general over the course of the previous you know 24 hours like tv you might get in there two hours earlier and you're all probably sitting in a room, and you're like, all right, well, we know what we're going to talk about. What, what's the angle that we're going to take? And having had a chance to do a decent amount of TV, like with CSN and Houston before, and then some of the different like things I do like once every couple of months, I feel like TV is a format where, you're, where you feel like this, this pressure when that red light goes on to like fire off this hot take and like disagree with the person next to you. Where I think radio is just sort of more of a conversation. You're sort of like weaving in and out in it an argument or a debate happens, then it'll kind of happen. But I, I never feel, I don't really feel pressured to ever disagree. Like, if it happens, that's fine. But I, I, I'm not going to, like, I, I don't want to go in every day and create opinions that I actually don't have and try to defend them over four hours. And that's one thing. It kind of coincides with, you guys probably both know, as you get older, you kind of realize what a pain in the butt is to lie it is to lie and you just you become less of a liar as you get older if you mature in the normal fashion because you just you've been burned and pinched too many times and that's kind of how i am with radio if i tried to use a lot of contrived takes i yeah, you guys know me i wouldn't be able to keep it straight you know i would not be i would i would get found out so quickly that i just couldn't handle the that tangled web and i would be found out so that's that's at least part of it and the other thing is that one of the biggest things you have going for you in radio once you're in a market is that the more time you're in that market, the more people are loyal to you and the more people start to look at you as just part of their daily routine and a part of their life. And I think part of forming that relationship is trying to be as honest with your listeners as possible and trying to come off as, as much like a real person and as much like yourself as possible. And, and I mean, my radio persona is it's not anything I try for. 
it, but it's definitely a more exaggerated version of myself because you spend four hours a day talking and you have to talk. That a lot of those little, a lot of those things that you would say or those emotions that you would kind of squash in normal and polite conversation, they they come right out. So it's a more exaggerated version of myself. But at the at the base of it all, I think when you listen to Mike and I, you're getting pretty much. I mean, Mike, I guess that's pretty much the way you and I talk when we're off air. So I guess that's a good thing. Yeah, I would say like to each other. Yeah, it's like it, broadcasting is kind of like an elevated version of like of yourself, you know. Um, and I actually I, I'm intrigued by the podcast format because I feel like you can kind of like relax more and like we're doing right now just kind of chat. Whereas radio, you kind of feel like uh, like the in needs to be clean and the out needs to be clean and all these different things. Um, and I suddenly lost my train of thought. But uh, <laughs> but yeah, I, I mean, but but just but just to, to uh, Seth's point, basically, I mean, I I kind of feel I, I'm kind of into a lane here. Uh, all right, so. I, I kind of feel I'm doing this. I'm doing this. I'm doing this podcast while I got this car, and I'm like, this is the first time I'm doing a. I'm actually, I'm actually doing something into the phone, and that is like the weirdest like cognitive dissonance thing. That's um, all right though, Mike. Because <laughs> yesterday I was listening to Windhorst and uh, and Zach Lowe, and Windhorst I actually was describing a road rage incident as he was on with Zach Lowe. So if you see anything, be the reporter on the spot. It was good stuff. Yes. Oh. Yeah, and uh, the thing I was going to say is that, like, if you, let, let's say you saw me at a bar, and you went up to me, and you were like, hey, like, let's talk about, like, if you, you asked me my opinion on something, or you wanted to give me your opinion, the, the, the chances that in that kind of situation, like, I'm, like, way more, I'm just, like, way more low-key about things, because, like, when I, when I broadcast, when we do the radio show, I'm like, all right, well, I gotta, I gotta bring it with energy to all this different stuff, but when it comes to, like, if I was just hanging out with you anywhere, then I would. I'm just. I'm not gonna like fire off hot takes back and forth and argue with you vehemently. Um, whereas, right. whereas radio, obviously, is, is a different kind of thing. I think so. When Mike and I, what I meant is when Mike and I are talking to each other off air. That's we probably because. There's, we're not sensitive about it, you know. We kind of we, we know what each other are, and and we're probably a little bit more like that. But I don't talk to I don't talk to my wife the way I talk to Mike about AJ Hinch's uh, <laughs> philosophy on how you should be a closer. So you guys obviously are, are very you know locked in with the text uh, boards and the and the message boards and the tweeters and the callers and all that stuff. You guys have an idea of of the Houston milieu, if you will. So I'm just curious, after this amount of time, uh, you know, being in and amongst the Houston sports fans, is there a defining characteristic to Houston sports or to Houston sports fans something because you know you think like Oakland Raiders fans are violent crazy people things like that is there a, a reputation or a characteristic of Houston sports fans that's a, that's a really good question I, I don't know if I have a, as great of a feel of that as I should like I feel like from a from a texting standpoint I feel like it's uh there's obviously a ton of passion and I and I feel like you can never go wrong talking about the texting with the NFL because I mean you're in a city that sells out every single game and no matter what it is, if it's a draft or some event, like you go, you just like see the crowds, you see the jerseys that are out in the city, and it just speaks to the, to the popularity, the passion. I'll admit, like I have, I have less of a grit, I have less of a good sense of that when it comes to Rockets fans or Astros fans, just in terms of like demographics. Like obviously, like the, obviously people who are you know big sports fans, casual sports fans, the big sports fan is going to root for all three teams. The casual sports fan, you know, might be in on the Astros and the Rockets or the Texans only when they're winning, one of those kind of situations. Um, but I, I don't have as great a sense, for example, if you ask me, like, what's the difference between the Astros fan base and the Rockets fan base? I would have a tougher time answering that question. Maybe I should have an easier time. I'm not, I'm not sure exactly. I, you know what? <laughs> I think it's, it's a trick. <laughs> <It's got the laughs> fair. 
it's tricky because the first terms that would spring to mind is are maybe long suffering and beleaguered, but but it's tempered by the fact that over the course of the last twenty years since the Rockets won their championships, there've there haven't been any championships, but there really haven't been a lot of long, awful droughts of losing, except for the Astros when it was by design. And I always feel like there's a little bit of an asterisk there because it's one thing if you're the Cleveland Browns or a team like that that, that has some really bad seasons and they're trying to win the fact that the Astros went through the period that they did it's it's not quite as bad so I just if there was one word I guess I might say frustrated because there's a lot of there are a lot of diehard born and bred Houston fans that are, are getting real antsy to get a championship in one of the three major sports at some point soon now Seth I kind of want to dive into your career here for a moment I mean you've got a unique background. You had no Division One scholarship offers uh, coming out of college. You know, you went to an Ivy League school, were drafted out of there, spent ten years in the NFL. How do you think you know that experience, that drive, that determination has kind of helped you uh, with that transition to radio in terms of you know preparing day to day? Do you do you take that same mentality of game preparation as you do for you know live on air preparation? Uh, yeah, I do, and I think. If there was there was one thing that I was really lucky to have growing up, and you know I would, I didn't have a conventional household necessarily, and my my dad is a pretty unique character, but I think both my mom and my dad really instilled in me early on that there was there was really nothing I couldn't do, and that I should really whatever dream I might have or whatever I wanted to do in the world, you know, whether it was something big or something unique or something different, that I should just go for it. And, you know, starting at Cornell, where at that point no Ivy League player had been drafted in over a decade, and it wasn't really a realistic career goal for a lot of those guys, I once I decided on what I wanted to do, I didn't really feel like there were any boundaries or limits to it, and, and I went after it. And the other thing was that because I was, raised in a farming family and, and had to do a lot of really hard, physical, miserable work early on. I, I think the entire time I was in the NFL and I think while I'm on radio, I really recognize and understand how lucky you are if you have a job that's really not a job, you know, and that if it's, uh, right. that it's really a game or it's really it, playing sports, it's a game and you're doing it for a living. Talking on the radio is something you're going to do with your friends anyway. If you're talking about sports, it's something you're going to do with your friends anyway, but you can get paid to do it. And in recognizing how cool a job that is, that you gotta, you gotta prepare like it's work. And if you prepare like it's work, then when you're actually performing your job, you can just have fun and, and, and always maintain that balance. It's, a, it's tough sometimes in radio to remember. You have to really remind yourself that sports are supposed to be fun and you're not supposed to be angry all the time. Uh, that's, that's probably the biggest challenge I face day in and day out, and I just always try to remind myself of that. I think that's a really good point by Seth, especially that, that last part, because like, I, I'm always thinking every day, I'm like, all right, we got you know, four hours, we're six to ten. Like, what are our main hits? Like, what are the other things we want to mix in? Like, what fun stuff we want to do? And then sometimes, like, I mean, you know, realistically, like, there are, there are certain times of year, like, sometimes around now, if, like, the finals are not that competitive, where you're like, well, we don't really have four hours of content. And then you, like, get internally frustrated. And then sometimes I have to remind myself, like, okay, you know, we're having fun. We're talking about sports. Like, just think about it in terms of that. Like, let's just have fun, entertain people, and not worry as much about, like, do I have enough stuff to, quote-unquote, fill up four hours and just sort of, like, 
maybe allow myself to walk that tightrope of like, you know what, I'm not convinced I have enough, but let's like go and talk and just kind of like see how it develops. And you know what's funny about that too is Mike and I are both this way. Sometimes we'll have a segment where we feel like we just phoned it in, like we weren't really, like we really, we didn't feel like we were saying anything important and maybe not phoning it in, but we, it really didn't feel like work and it was very relaxed. And Mike and I will both feel a little weird about it. And then all of a sudden, uh, on on the text line, or my wife will tell me, or the program will, director will tell me, man, that 615 segment was awesome. You guys were just rolling. That was good radio. And it's it's a reminder that, uh, oh, yeah, this is supposed to be fun, and this is supposed to be a couple of guys having a conversation. you know. And uh, if you do that all the time, and you're always just chopping it up and not really planning anything out, then, you, again, that probably swings too far the other way. But you, you got to find that balance. Talking is exceptionally fun, and no one pays us to do this. This is a passion project, a labor of love. But i got to say, one of the least fun things is being uh, just blindingly, overwhelmingly wrong, which listeners to this podcast know I've made numerous predictions, and they have almost all been uh, not just wrong, but like the polar opposite of what they should be. So, you know, Rockets, I predicted a championship this year before it started. I mean, all kinds of disastrous picks like that. So I'm curious, you guys are on the record with a radio program. Can you remember a most embarrassingly wrong prediction that you're on the record making? When did I say that we were on the brink of a golden age of Houston sports? That, that was a year ago, and I, and I still stand by the overall principle by which you created that opinion. <laughs> why? Why would you do that? That's how I feel. That's how I say it. But listen, if Osweiler works out and the Rockets can turn it around and the Astros can get better, then we're all in good shape here, right? <laughs> yeah, we're all in good shape, but the Rockets are a two-year project at least, which puts my prediction like three years off. Uh, you, uh, you know, who knows? It's like a, it's like a, a period of time where it, just, it needs some time to work out. Who knows? And that's that's the other thing. I just said that the Rockets are a two-year project, which hopefully is a prediction that I'm dead wrong on. Morton's going to work some magic. They're going to trade for somebody. D'Antoni's going to be reborn, and uh, it'll be completely different. So hopefully I'm wrong about that, too. But that's my, my biggest one that we have a lot of fun with is that I was – I did say that I thought last season – that the Texans were a quarterback away from being, uh, from bringing the city of Houston a golden age in Houston sports for all three major professional sports. So what was yours, Mike? Uh, I'm trying to think. I mean, I, I mean, I, I've been wrong on a million different things. For some reason, like, like I can't think of one. I, I need to find one that I was like completely wrong on. But like, I was a per, like for for example, um, I was a relative matchup defender when he was in Houston. Now, I would have never been able to predict, like, obviously the drastic drop-off that he had in 2013. Um, you know what's going to happen is, like, we'll finish recording, and then, like, and two hours later I'm going to realize something I was completely wrong on. But suffice it to say, I've been wrong on, like, five million things. But to me it kind of comes with the territory because, like, if you read guys like Nate Silver, predicting the future is, like, the hardest thing a human being can do, especially when it comes to sports. So I don't really stress about being wrong. I don't really stress about being wrong about that. I stress about being wrong about, like, maybe, you know, you hire the right GM or not. Like, that's more of, like, a fundamental opinion versus, like, is this team going to win a game or, or not? And I try really hard. That's one of the other challenges I, I face is I try really hard to not worry about sounding stupid because that'll be the that'll be the quickest death you can have in terms of your spontaneity, the the energy on your show, humor especially. Uh, I I finally did learn to like I, I don't worry anymore about whether or not somebody gets my sarcasm or not. Like if I'm sarcastic on air, I just know that 
95% of the people are going to think I'm dead serious and that the Astros have to win this Rangers game or the season's is over. And, and that that's, that's the way it is, and that's just the cost of doing business. So I try real hard not to worry about it. I, I falter at times, but if you, I, and I think that goes for playing sports too. If you worry too much about making mistakes, that's when you tease up, that's when you tense up, that's when you choke. So you really got to try to focus on just having a conversation being, you know, intellectually honest, you know, not just throw stuff out there and hope that it comes true, but not worry too much about whether you end up sounding like an idiot when it doesn't work out. You know, I, I, actually, got a, I actually got a real quick one that I thought about while Seth was talking. Like, last year, we talked about when should the Astros bring up Carlos Correa, and I had the opinion of, like, well, he broke his ankle the year before, right? And so he hadn't had a lot of at-bats at, I think, double-A or triple-A. Like, they just uh, – I think they had, like, just brought him to AAA, and I was like, listen, this is going to be more of, like, a mid-season, like, maybe August kind of thing, and I was very, like, I was very conservative with my opinion, and then Correa comes up, and he's, like, just a monster, and I was watching him, and I, and I told the people on Twitter who, you know, called me out on it afterwards, I was like, listen, I'll be honest with you guys, I was completely wrong, like, I knew this guy had a lot of potential and could be really good, I had no clue that he could be that good right away. Like, I just honestly had no idea and was totally wrong about that. Just for those that are listening right now, as we are recording, Carlos Correa actually went out of today's Astros game with uh, an apparent injury, so we'll have an update on him later. But uh, both of you guys just mentioned Brock Osweiler and the, and the quarterback situation and, uh, you know, Matt Shaw back in the day. But last week on your radio show, you interviewed someone in Denver and kind of spoke about uh, Brock Os- Osweiler and, you know, him not attending the White House ceremony. But uh, kind of more broadly looking toward uh, this year, it looks like the Texans have a lot of uh, pieces in place to have a productive offense this year. If Osweiler is successful at the quarterback position, uh, what is your take right now on him as a signal caller for the Texans? And do you think he can actually help take this team to that next level? I right now am trying real hard to be cautiously optimistic. I, you go back and you watch the games he did play last year, and there were some really bright moments. There were some spots where he looked like a complete field general, and he looked like he knew what he was doing. There are other times where it looked like he struggled to adjust to, to the defensive adjustments in the second half, and that's what you see out of young quarterbacks. And the, the real big wild card here is that we saw him – in Gary Kubiak's system, which is a completely different system in a lot of respects than what he had been doing the first three years he was in the NFL. And uh, to not make any excuses for him or anything, I just don't know. I don't know how much of last year's performance you can translate into what he's going to do with Gary Kubiak's performance. The upside and the thing I've been really excited about is that from just listening to DeAndre Hopkins and talking to people around the Texans organization about his preparation, you can check off all the boxes when it comes to those things that you need in a quarterback in the NFL these days where he's basically your CEO. You know, does, is he demanding of his receivers? Yes. Does he, does he show up first? Does he leave last? Yes. Uh, does, he, does he genuinely live, sleep, eat, and breathe football? Yes. And, and those are all great. That doesn't mean he's going to uh, be a guaranteed success. But at this point in time, that's all you can hope for. The other thing is you can see just by their actions in the draft how much they're committed to helping him work over there. And if you put a bunch of speed on the field, if you have Lamar Miller, who I, you know, I don't know if Lamar Miller is going to be a bell cow and how many carries he's going to get per game, 
but he's going to help a quarterback out a lot. Whichever quarterback Lamar Miller plays for, his ability as a receiver is going to help Osweiler out a lot. So I'm I'm optimistic that Osweiler is going to do pretty well, but I'm also really happy to see that whether it was Osweiler, whether it was Mark Sanchez, whoever, whoever it would have been that they brought in here, I think the quarterback for the Texans this year is going to have a lot more help and support around him than any of the quarterbacks did last year. I, I would agree with the cautious optimism part. I mean, I mean, here's the thing: like a lot of people that we've seen in the national media have been not maybe not a lot, but a, a, a certain a select few have been very critical of the Osweiler signing. And my take is sort of like, I don't know, if you like pull back from sports and you look at business, like one thing that frustrates me sometimes is that people will act like sports teams have unlimited choices and they and they can like go to the grocery store and get whatever they want. It's not really the case. Like if you look at the Texans situation, we know that. A, they had to they had to make a significant investment in a quarterback this offseason. They've gone two years without doing so, and you're selling tickets and you're selling hope. And at some point, when your coach usually has five or six years in a contract, like at some point you have to put a stake in the ground and say, okay, we're going to try to have this guy be our franchise quarterback. That's what they started with. If you look at what transpired over the offseason, they did not have the draft capital to move on to number one or number two without probably literally giving up like J.J. Watt or DeAndre Hopkins. So they couldn't get Carson Wentz or Jared Goff, obviously. And so you were left, if you look big, like overall in what happened this offseason, it was going to be Brock Osweiler or it was going to be Paxton Lynch or one of the other quarterbacks in the draft. And so basically I think what you do as an organization, and I'm sure they did, is you break down the film on all those guys and you say, you know what, our best chance for success in their mind is pay this money to Osweiler, keep the draft picks, use those picks on largely offensive players, and see what you can do. It's not like you were presented with a completely perfect solution. I'm, Osweiler, to me, when I, when I saw him play, like Seth mentioned, um, he looked pretty solid to me. I think that there's upside there. Um, I do worry about the dynamic of I've always had the opinion that in football, in the NFL, if you're completely desperate for someone to stay, then you're going to find a way for that guy to stay, and the Broncos – felt like they couldn't move past a certain point with Osweiler, so that scares me based on how good of a GM John Elway has been. But I will agree with the overall sense of cautiously optimistic. You guys know, I think we all know, this is a pro sports town. Obviously, you have three major sports here. We're blessed to have that kind of a presence here in Houston. Uh, but I'm a U of H alum, and so I'm always looking for U of H to sort of climb that ladder and be part of the conversation. And so I'm just, from your perspective, you know, doing these shows and so forth, obviously Tom Herman's come in. They had a great deal of success last year, beat Florida State in the Peach Bowl. What would it take for this to be uh, a really vibrant college town that is invested in U of H uh, and maybe not so much in like the Texas or, or the Texas A&M? Mike, Mike and I actually just had a, a small conversation about, well, college football in general after our show today and looking ahead, you know, wondering if we should talk more college football this year because we were looking at some of the TV numbers from last year and the University of Houston in particular, you guys know, uh, did very well on television. And we're trying to kind of figure out and gauge exactly how much college football we can talk. The tricky thing with college football on our show or on radio, I think, in general, is that as soon as you start talking Texas A&M, then there's a whole portion of the audience that doesn't want to hear anything about A&M. As soon as you start talking about Houston, there's a whole portion of the audience that only wants to hear SEC. So it's, it's a matter of finding that right balance. And obviously with Houston and Tom Herman and everything that happened this last year, there's, obvious, there's, a, there's a whole lot of 
pent up in potential emotion there, and there are a whole lot of people that just that want to watch it on television. I think this year, for us personally, we're probably going to end up focusing a lot more on University of Houston, on some local college. Uh, it, I just don't know. I don't really have a feel for it yet how, how exactly that's going to look. Yeah, one of the hardest things for us is just in terms of, like, the programming structure in that it's obviously, as you guys mentioned, a pro sports town, so it's an NFL city. In the fall, your Monday is going to be basically you're going to take whatever the Texans game on Sunday, and that's going to be the major conversation over the course of those four hours, and you'll, like, mix in the other big NFL games and stories of the weekend. And so, really, the first time you can talk about college football, at least in detail, will be Tuesday. And then you kind of feel like, well, you're a few days separate from the games, and it's a lot more natural sometimes to talk about a game the moment or the day after it happened Whereas for us, it's like, all right, you've got a Texas game Sunday, and so you're going to do a lot of that on Monday, and you have to, like, save all the college football stuff for Tuesday. That It kind of makes it, like, more difficult for us from just a, a pure structural standpoint, but not really an excuse. I mean, that's something that I need to, uh, I need to personally be better at. But this is the thing, too. Uh, Tom Herman's personality and the force of his personality is, is – just a phenomenon unto itself. And I think he did some things with Houston this year, not just on the field, but in terms of the, uh, of the perception of the University of Houston within the city that really took a lot of people by surprise. And we did a broadcast from just off campus down there this year. And, I, and then I drove, you know, I've been, Mike and I have both been on campus for various reasons uh, a lot more this last year. And the one thing that really struck me when I was down there is, man, I – you see all that red, and when you see the team mentioned in national conversations and in the rankings, you get that. I look. I didn't go to University of Houston. I've never like. I don't. I don't. I, I have no connection. I didn't date a girl that went to University of Houston. But the fact that it says Houston uh, on on the sign, and you know that they're doing well, and it's the local football team, I started to kind of feel a sense of pride about it. And you get excited, and you get that collegiate feel about things. So I don't know where it's going to go from here. And I think the bigger question is, no matter how long Tom Herman sticks around, can he establish something there that is a legacy and that, you know, whether it's Major Applewhite or somebody else, whoever ends up being the coach whenever Tom Herman leaves, can they keep going what he's created right there? Because a lot of it, a lot of it isn't just the success on the field. It's Tom Herman's really outsized personality. And then I say outsized in a good way. Speaking of cult of personality, Seth, obviously you were a professional athlete, uh, a radio orator, and you've got, uh, I'm looking at Deceptively Fast here, which is that a blog effort that you've put together here? Yeah. <laughs> Are there going to be more of these in the future? Because I'm actually, I'm pleasantly, I shouldn't say pleasantly surprised. It's actually a lot like uh, Deceptively Fast in terms of a backhanded compliment, but, but I am surprised. I mean, it's enjoyable writing. I like reading the stuff that you've written. Is there going to be more of that coming forward? I think I like once every two or three months I decide that I'm going to start writing more and and I do it and it's just I've got uh, I'll tell you this I've got no self confidence when it comes to my writing and I'm very I, I just I'm not a perfectionist in any other realm of life but when I, I've never written a single thing in my life that I'm happy about so it's kind of one of those things where I've it's an exercise in just trying to stream of consciousness put it out there edit it up a little bit and put it on the internet without really thinking about it so that's i can't really give you a straight answer yeah deceptivelyfast.com i i have some fun with that the 
the program director at our station would much, much, much more like me to go to sportsradio610.com and write a lot more there. So uh, hopefully there will be more on that in the future. I actually have to tell Kevin that when we send out social media tweets on Monday to make sure that he tweets it from the show account rather than his personal account first. But guys, we've really enjoyed uh, the conversation and appreciate you guys taking the time out to uh, talk with us on the Weekly Brew podcast this week. And again, for our listeners, we've got Mike Meltzer and Seth Payne from Mad Radio on the podcast this week. And uh, if you want to tune into them, you can find them on Sports Radio 610 in Houston from 6 to 10 a.m. on your morning drive. And uh, guys, you are pretty active on social media, both of you. Uh, how can the listeners, our listeners, find you? And what is the best way for them to connect to you? So uh, basically, uh, uh, Twitter or Facebook. Uh, Twitter is at Mike Meltzer, real simple. It's with an S, not a Z. And uh, Facebook, Mike Meltzer as well. And I am relatively active on both, I think, although probably more active on Twitter when it comes to people and uh, listeners wanting to uh, chat about different things. I am on Twitter at PayneNFL. Facebook, you can find me at DeceptivelyFast, and then also, obviously, DeceptivelyFast.com. To our listeners out there, make sure that you follow them on all of their social media platforms. They produce great content. And also, we encourage you to listen to their uh, morning drive show on Sports Radio 610 if you don't already. But uh, Mike, Seth, we definitely appreciate you guys joining us this week. Guys, thank you so much. Really, really appreciate it. Hey, my, my pleasure. Anytime. Thanks, guys. You're listening to The Weekly Brew. Joining us now on The Weekly Brew podcast is Angel Verdejo, who covers the Houston Astros for the Houston Chronicle. And Angel, we know you've been busy covering the MLB draft this week, but before we dive into that, Astros fans had a scare last week as Carlos Correa suffered a sprained ankle during the Rangers series after trying to beat out a throw to first. And what have you heard about his injury and a potential timetable for his return? You know, everyone by now, everyone's seen the pictures or seen the video, it's um, you know, it looked bad at the time, but the fact that he was able to walk the very next day when they were in Tampa is a good sign. You know, they're trying to avoid the DL, like with mo- you know, with most injuries. Basically, just like AJ said the night of, it's very much day to day. They're checking on him every day when he gets to the ballpark. He's having treatment. You know, I don't think it's going to be. And also remember, he's 21 years old. So for most people that are 21 or used to be 21, your body heals a lot faster when you're younger. So I don't expect this to be as bad as maybe it looked the day of, you know, it, it, it's going to hurt the lineup because obviously we know the lineup gets a lot shorter when he's not in it. But I don't think it's that bad. You know, we'll, we'll give it a few more days and kind of see how he is as far as running. Because obviously he's able to walk around. He's not looking as bad as he was. But you don't need him out there walking. You need him out there running. So that's going to be the big key. But I don't think it's going to require, you know, a massive couple of weeks off on the DL or something like that. It's just, you know, give him some time to get back to running. The uh, the bet noir for the Astros this season and last has been the Texas Rangers, obviously sharing the same division. Brian T. Smith, actually on uh, the Chronicle, wrote, uh, uh, there's only one question the Astros must ask themselves. Does blank help them beat the Texas Rangers? And so just from your perspective and watching the team and kind of seeing that struggle with the Rangers, what is it this team needs to do in order to get over that hump? The team needs to get better. You know, when you look at the Astros and you look at the Rangers, you simply put them down on paper, the starting rotation, the bullpen, the lineups, the Rangers are a better team. I mean, just I mean, point blank. If you look at a lineup, you know, once once you Darvish got back, they added another Cy Young caliber pitcher. You look at the Astros rotation, and really through about this early part of June, Doug Fisher has been the only consistent starter in that five-man rotation. Dallas Keuchel already has as many losses right now that he had that he had all of last year. You have multiple starters whose ERAs are over five. Lance Cullers. You know, we, we know he's young. We know he's going to get better, but he's still he's still a starting pitcher that is struggling out of the gate. I mean, you're giving up multiple multiple runs within the first two innings, and the offense is always have to play catch up. That's a problem. So, 
as far as beating the Rangers, they're not going to lose. I mean, they played 19 times, they've won once. They're not going to lose the rest of them. They'll pick, they'll pick up a few more wins. But, you know, the Rangers being one of the best teams in the American League right now shouldn't shock anyone when you look at the lineup. You know, they have they have bats essentially up and down, almost 1-9. You know, they have two bona fide aces in their staff with Hamill and you Darvish, and they have a lights-out bullpen. And, and as most people saw last year with the Astros, when you, have a, when you have all that going at the same time, you're tough to beat. And when you look at the Astros right now on paper and when you watch them play, they just don't have that. They have a lineup that drops off dramatically once you get past that first third, heading into that second third. They have a starting rotation which has struggled from the jump. And they have a bullpen which is probably the strongest part of this team outside of Jose Altuve. You know, they have a strong bullpen, but again, when the bullpen is always coming in when they're, you know, when the team is down or you're always calling on people in tight spots, it's going to break down. So, yeah, as, as of right now, how the Astros will beat the Rangers, they have to, they have to be a better team. One of the similarities that I see between the Astros and the Rangers is, you know, over the past few years, they've put a, a strong focus on the farm system. And of course, with the Major League Baseball draft taking place last week, uh, the Astros drafted Forrest Whitley, a, uh, a big 6'7 right-handed pitcher out of Alamo Heights in San Antonio. And then they picked up Ronnie Dawson in the second round, uh, who's uh, an outfielder for Ohio State and, uh, and another big-time prospect. But when you're analyzing the, uh, the, the the draft class so far, how do you think the Astros did at the top of the draft by taking Forrest? and Ronnie in the first two rounds? You know, with, with the first day, and I guess the disclaimer, which I saw a lot on Twitter, I retweeted a bunch of people, and just from what I've told people is, no matter what happened the first day, the second day, the third day, none of these guys are going to be showing up with the Astros this year, probably next year, and even the year before that. So no matter what happens, no matter, no matter how much you like the names or dislike them, understand that Forrest Whitley and Ronnie Dawson will not be on the team anytime soon. That said... I do like the picks. You know, Forrest Whitley, for everyone who's seen him and heard of him, arguably the best prospect in the state. So they had a good eye on him. You know, everyone who went and saw him had good reviews all the way all the way from Jeff Lunau, Nolan Ryan went to go watch him. Every talent evaluator in, in the organization went to go watch this kid pitch. And he was, you know, he was phenomenal. You know, he has the build, big 6'7 kid with a plus fastball, you know, three other pitches to his disposal. He actually was pitching the day he got drafted. Um, he, Alamo Heights was in the state semifinals. He struck out 11 that day. You know, the scary part for baseball fans is he threw 123 pitches in that day, in that game. Wow. But, you know, he's not he's not the first or last high school pitcher in a high-pressure game of the state semifinals, a region final, or a title game to throw that many pitches. It's happened before. He's probably not going to pitch anytime soon. So I'm not I'm, I'm not going to bash the coach for that. But, like I said, great pitcher, great family. You know, everything, everything, everything is pointing in the right direction. The only thing people need to remember is that he is a high school pitcher, so it's going to take time. So you have to be patient with a kid like Forrest Whitley. As far as the second pick, Ronnie Dawson, college outfielder, we all know Ohio State is not known for its baseball, more so football and basketball, but, you know, <laughs> led, the team, led, led the team to the NCAA tournament, was the MVP of the Big Ten tournament, and, you know, just could make up former football players, so you know he's athletic, you know he can, you know, He's going to be able to do what they need him to do. Now, how soon is he'll be able to make that move through the system? With all players in the minors, we just never know. But as far as identifying needs, they got one of the top pitchers that they wanted and one of the top collegiate bats that they wanted on that first day. So as far as their plan, they executed their plan. Now it's just a matter of will the masses have enough patience to, to understand that it takes time. It's sort of like this year with the Alex Bregman. 
as much as everybody wants him to be playing third base for the Astros right now, you have to remember that basically a year ago he was still playing college baseball. So you can't just flip the switch and automatically become a major league pitcher or a major league infielder out for their takes time. And that's, that's what a lot of people just simply don't understand. When I look at Forrest Whitley, I see, you know, obviously the big frame. He's got a fastball that's top 97 at times this year and a great secondary pitches as well. But when I look back at the uh, the Astros draft classes the past few seasons, I, I look at Brady Aiken specifically in 2014 and him not signing and then ultimately having the UCL issue. Uh, when I look at the other top 10 picks for the Astros, they went, you know, the left-handed pitchers that they went to, you know, uh, Brett Adcock, Michigan, uh, you know, Ryan Hartman, Tennessee Wesleyan, uh, those are college guys. Is there any concern after the Brady Aiken situation of taking high school prospect at the pitching position that early in the draft? I don't think so because when it comes to making those picks, I guess I can, I guess I can say it's sort of like the David Carr, Derek Carr. You know, I'm not going to say the Texans did not pick Derek Carr because they had his older brother, but I think if you put a, I think if you put all those guys, if you if you put, if you gave them all truth serum, some of that would play. And as we've all seen, Derek Carr is not that bad of a quarterback. So I don't think that they should never pick a high school pitcher just because you technically got burned on one. I mean, if he's the best pitcher you thought was going to be on, on the board and he was available, you got to take him. And as as you've seen, he's got the measurables. He has the stuff. Of course, we'll see what happens because, you know, they weren't with Forrest every day of his pitching career. From what I've read, you know, uh, he was, I mean, he, his, his, he wasn't overused. He had uh, parents and coaches who were very careful as far as watching his use and his routine. So it's not like they're picking up a guy who's been throwing, you know, 140 pitches every time he's out there in district play. So, so I wouldn't worry too much about that. And again, as far as philosophy and what you do and don't do, it's, Put it like this: If the Astros were picking number one and the best pitcher was a high school pitcher, and they don't pick him, and then all of a sudden that pitcher comes back three years later and ends up being Clayton Kershaw, now you right. get now you get now, you know now all of a sudden everyone's going to say you should have picked him. So you got you got to take it on a year to year basis. Yes, we, know, we all know what happened with Brady Aiken, but don't let that stop you the next year from picking the best guy who you think is the, the best guy. So while we may not see uh, any of these individual players from this draft next year or even the year after, they do contribute to the overall health of the farm system, which has been a strength uh, of this team for some time. So just kind of looking more at a macro kind of broad uh, scope here, how do you assess the, the strength of the farm system and where this team's trajectory over the next two, three, five years? You know, as it's been in the last couple of years, it's still strong. You know, obviously strong up where they were able to make some moves. Now fans and everyone will have their own judgment as to how the moves have actually gone. You know, Velasquez, I believe, was going on the disabled list maybe as we speak right now at Philadelphia. So I think a lot of people maybe have backed off on the Vince Velasquez, Ken Giles talk. But, you know, yeah, it's, it's a strong farm system. There are great prospects right now in AAA and AA and even further down. Again, as, as I've learned as a guy watching baseball and now covering, prospects kind of have – it depends on how you view them. Of course, prospects in your own system, fans are going to love them. Whereas, you know, the, the, you know, the telltale sign of a prospect is if, you know, if, he's, if, if everyone else wants him. Yes, a lot of people think Alex Bregman is the future somewhere on this team, be it third base, you know, the talk of maybe forcing Correa over to third and put him at short. But, you know, if Bregman was on the trading block or part of a – if he was part of a trade and every other team in the, major, in the majors wanted him, that's how you would know he's a great prospect. So it's – you kind of got to take it all, not so much through the Houston Astros colored sunglasses. Yes, we 
everyone's in love with Bregman, everyone's in love with A.J. Reed, Martez, Paulino, you know, all those guys. And, yes, it, it, they, there are plenty of strong prospects in the system. That's a fact. But, again, we'll see what happens down the road. And that's, that's kind of always what I thought. Because, you know, as, just, as a fan growing up, you always hear about the next wave of guys. And you're always ready for that next wave to get here. And then either when they do and they disappoint or when they get traded off to somewhere else and they, and they do or don't. That's how you kind of know how good they are, really. So, you know, as a whole, strong farm system. We'll see what happens down the road. But, you know, and of course, and this draft class, you're just going to add to it. So it's, I will say, compared to other teams, yes, the Astros have more positives than negatives. Kind of touching on Bregman for a second. He's in Corpus Christi this year. Started the year at shortstop. They kind of worked him a little bit at third base and in kind of, I guess, hopes of uh, moving him over into that left side of the infield to uh, to be with Correa in the future. But he's having a pretty good year at the plate as well. I mean, he's got uh, 55 hits, 11 doubles. He's batting 307. I mean, he's had a solid offensive year. When can we expect him to maybe get a promotion uh, to Fresno in the AAA level? And is there any chance that the Astros might call him up in September or are we kind of in a Carlos Gray situation with arbitration and, uh, you know, super two, the timelines, it's you know, me and my partner, Jake Kaplan, we've kind of had this talk and I kind of like his, his stance on if the team was contending, there'd be more reason to bring him up. You know, I could see him more so because we know how the year is going, maybe more so on the back end. He'll probably end up in Fresno sooner than later. And that, that really almost depends on, the guys in front of the guys in front of him, how it shakes out, you know, had Correa gone on the DL or if that's even still a possibility, there might've been a chance to get him up there to get some, to get some at bat. But, you know, again, people need to realize that I believe this time a year ago, he was still playing at LSU where they made super regional causal series. I, I wouldn't have my head, but don't, you know, he'll be there, you know, when, and wherever it's going to be, honestly, we don't even know as of right now, you know, he's still the shortstop. He's getting plenty of reps at third. Right. And, you know, whoever is going to answer that question down the road, because that question is going to be asked, is, you know, everyone sees Carlos Correa play shortstop, and he is a phenomenal shortstop with phenomenal ability. But everyone who also watches him also watch, will also watch him not make every play. And, yes, he may not be the Omar Vizquel shortstop that everybody wants him to be, but I believe he's still a very good shortstop. But so is Alex Bregman. So I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm pretty sure all of us would, would really want to be the fly on the wall when that discussion has to be made of what do you do when Brickman finally has to do, force his way up to the Astros lineup. So if you'll indulge me, Angel, uh, as a sports writer, I love good stories. And as a U of H alum, I love that Nick Hernandez was drafted by the hometown team, obviously as a, a hometown product as well. Um, so I would love to see him playing for the Astros at some point. But obviously, he's you know, an eighth-round pick. He dominated in the AAC. But uh, I'm just wondering, from your perspective, how likely is it that this story comes to fruition? I'm able to see a guy that played for my University of Houston uh, playing for the Astros at the major league level. No, I think it'd be a great story. And, like you know, as most people know, before I was covering the Astros, I was covering high schools here in Houston. So I saw him pitch at Bellas. Even before he got to UH and before he was at Alton Community College, you know, Bellas went to the state finals in 2013. They lost to the Woodlands, who had another solid pitching staff that year. But, you know, he was one of the – they had they had, a, they had a, a one-two combination, him and a kid named Dakota Mills who signed with West Virginia out of high school. And, no, they took him all the way to the state finals, and, and Dallas was good. So, you know, it's always great to be drafted. And, you know, the first day or even, I mean, I, I guess Michael Elias after, after the first two days of the draft kind of mentioned getting hometown guys, you know, Forrest being a one-in state. But I think it does mean something, just a little something extra when you can find a guy who's sitting right in your backyard and develop him in the system. It's just a cool story. You know, I think part of the re- – yeah, a great reason – 
people love Lance Berkman here in Houston is because he was a great player. It also helps that he was from Texas or the Roger Clemens or the Nolan Ryans. I mean, it just adds to the intrigue. So, yeah, we'll see how it develops. You know, eighth-rounders, just as much as some make it, some don't. I mean, he's got a great chance. You know, he had a great he had a great year with UH, and that's part of the reason they loved him is that he, he became a shutdown closer. But, yeah, if he, if he all of a sudden, say, three or four years from now, and we see that Nick Hernandez got called up and he's, he's in the bullpen that day, he comes out in the eighth inning, and he's pitching in front of friends, family, UH fans. I mean, that's, that's a great story. And like you mentioned, everyone loves a great story. As a writer, I love telling great stories. And, you know, that, that would be one that would be a great story to tell in a couple of years from yet. When he comes up and all of a sudden, boom, in the eighth inning, he's throwing 94, 95 and, throw, and blowing people away in the same stadium or uh, stadium that he pitched at when he was in college and also one that I'm sure he went to as a kid who just was at, who, who was a kid who was just attending Dallas High School. The trade deadline is coming up in uh, the end of July, and I- I'm kind of curious with wh- where the Astros are sitting right now. Uh, a few games below 500. Uh, they've shown you know signs of contending lately, but again, they struggled during that Rangers series. Dropped the opening game against the Rays. When that trade deadline comes around, do you see Jeff Lunhow staying pat, dealing, or potentially being buyers or sellers? Or what do you think the Astros do in July? I don't know if I want to put a put a label on it yet, buyer or seller, because. Because again, if, if you ask me this question at the end of April, I think it was I think it was painfully obvious. I think we all knew at the end of April that this was a team that was not going to be a great team. They were going to find anyone that could get value of, you know, your, Gregor, your Luke Gregersons of the world, your Doug Fishers of the world. Hopefully, the Carlos Gomez had heated up, and then all of a sudden they turned it around in May. So they're not, you know, I understand what the record is against the Rangers, but they're not that far out of you know a wild card spot at this point. So I don't think you can put a label on it. Because again, they—I mean, looking at looking at the team on paper, they weren't a world-beating team on paper last year, and they did make it to the playoffs. They got to the you know the AL yeah. So, you know, if this team can somehow Rangers aside, if this team can somehow chip away, chip away, and all of a sudden you're a game or two out of the you know second wild card spot of the wild card spot, you know, again with every year you got a small window, you got to take it. You know, just like last year, they made moves. You know, because they were in position, sometimes you just have to do it. You know, that's the reason you have a farm system. That's the reason you have prospects as teams and as trade bait and trade chips. So, you know, the I guess the optimistic in me wants to say, you know what, let them be in contention when we get to the trade deadline and let them be able to make some moves. And hopefully they pan out to where even, you know, if they catch the Rangers, great. But if they're also in position to be that wild card team, you know. But as far as what I think right now, I don't – I. If you had to ask me, I'd say as of today, I'm going to keep them as a buyer because I've seen them play better baseball. It's just in longer stretch. April, the baseball I saw in April, I've seen a lot more better baseball than what I seen than what I saw in April. Well, Angel, you mentioned uh, Jake Kaplan, your partner at the Chronicle, and uh, covering the Astros beat, who we had on in episode 42, talking Astros back when they were looking a lot more bleak than they're looking right now. But um, obviously, he had some good insight as well. And I'm curious, maybe this is inside baseball, but between the two of you, how do you divvy up who writes what, who covers what, whose responsibilities are what in terms of giving the Astros the coverage that the Chronicle does? As far as the, the, the actual breakdown, it goes like this. Yes, both of us both of us cover the Astros. We're both Astros beat writers for the team. Jake is the... Jake is the number one on the beat. I'm the backup on paper. Obviously, I work plenty hard. I'm not going to act like I'm not working hard at all. As far as divvying up, when they're at home, both of us are generally at every game just for the sake of, I mean, the team is there. It's always the best time to get all your stuff. And 
that's how you divide it up. I, I probably missed maybe two home games this year. I believe Jake's in, in about the same ballpark when you just have to give someone a day off for the sake of everybody deserves a day off. Now, as far as the road trips, that's when it gets different with our beat. And the reason is, and I'm, I'm not going to applaud that sport, I got married this year. I got married in January. And as everyone knows, baseball is a long season when you're not around your family. So for the sake of my, my wife and my marriage, we sort of decided that Jake would take most of the road trips, which is fine. My wife's happy on that. So on paper, I've gone to, I'm going to one series a month with the exception of July when I'm, Jake's going to take the all-star break for the all-star game in July. And I'm taking the West coast trip the week after. So the Seattle Oakland swing, but in April, I went to Texas for the first sweep by the Rangers and I went to the White Sox last month, and then I'm going to St. Louis here this week to take the, to take the third leg of that series. Jake was very anti-St. Louis. I'll just I don't know. You have to ask him. He was very <laughs> anti-St. Louis. So I've never been to most of these stadiums, so I'm not going to complain. The U.S. Cellular gets a bad rap. I thought the stadium was fine. There's not much around it. I can understand why people love Wrigley versus U.S. Cellular. But having the college in Arlington, of course, I had no problem going up there. So it's it's been fun. For both of us, obviously, we're playing catch-up, having started right when the season started, but it's been fun. He's been a great guy to work with. He's, because he, he was a beat writer before, he's very knowledgeable of all the intricacies I didn't know about from just watching baseball from afar, it's just as a fan or just someone who loves baseball. So it's fun to bounce things off him. You know, I, I always bring a little something fresh. Like the, I, I'll bring just enough to the table to make myself useful. <laughs> and, you know, we're both – and, of course, we're just both getting used to – or just me, so – used to the time because obviously with high schools everyone knows it's mainly your friday nights for tuesday nights now it's you know i'm gone every day you know again i my wife's not going to kill me anytime soon as far as i know she loves me and uh <laughs> we're, we're, we're making it work we're making it work we definitely appreciate the work that you do covering the astros we think you've done a great job this year and we also enjoy following jake's work as well but uh, we appreciate the time uh, that you took this week to join us on the weekly brew podcast and for those that are interested in following your work or connecting with you on social media what is the best way for them to get in touch with you as always twitter's the best i do instagram but it's more depends on the day but yeah twitter's always the best and it's A-H for Dejo, you know, A-H-B-E-R-D-E-J-O. I'm always, I try to interact as much as I can some days. Some days it doesn't happen. I got I got kids as well, so, you know, sometimes I got to run around and take care of them. But, yeah, just like over the weekend, I had this big, I had a big LeBron James conversation with people because I don't understand why people don't think he's as good as he is. But anyway, but, yeah, I'm I'm there. You can always email me. You know, if, if you read the paper or have something to say about the Chronicle, you can find it. Well, Angel, we definitely appreciate uh, your time this week. All right, you guys take care anytime. Closing time. Another great episode of the Weekly Brew Podcast. Again, thanks to Mike Meltzer and Seth Payne from Mad Radio for joining us. Also, thanks to Angel Verdejo for talking Astros with us. We definitely enjoyed uh, the content and everything. But, uh, Kevin, you were on both of the calls. Uh, what were your thoughts? Mike and Seth are absolutely uh, terrific figures. They're bright and articulate. They don't fight or squabble. I mean, they really put together what I think is a quality show, and it's really rewarding to see them get recognized for that and to have uh, the most successful show in Houston. So it doesn't take a bunch of nonsense like you hear on first take in order to have a good show. And you don't have to be dumb sports guys. I mean, those are two really bright guys doing two, uh, or doing a really good show. And so I appreciate them coming on and sharing their insight into producing good content with us because that's what we're all about here is producing good content. Isn't that uh, what we do here at the Weekly Brew? I mean, bright people, sometimes we squabble, but producing solid content I every think episode. So. Yeah, right? I think so. I think the only difference is Seth Payne has a degree from Cornell and neither of us. Maybe you've heard of it? Yeah. 
neither of us do. I don't. I don't know that Baylor quite matches up to. Uh, we're the Baylor University is the Cornell of Central Texas. <laughs> I don't think anybody's going to argue with that. <laughs> Thanks to those guys for joining us on the podcast this week. And as we teased at the top of the show, uh, we actually have Jen here at the uh, We Dessert Studio to uh, talk about the latest stuff going on at the bakery. Kevin, I'm going to turn it over to you. Now, as you guys know, we record in the We Desserts studio, and uh, joining us now uh, is Jen from We Desserts, our sponsor. We love you guys, of course. Penny joined us in episode 33 to talk about the bakery, and we definitely enjoyed that conversation. But I do have a question for you, Jen. What, when I walk into We, I get the feeling that it's a special place. Uh, you might even say like a magical place. What is it that makes We so special, so magical, and so delightful to be in? We put a lot of dedication and pride into our desserts. Um, and a lot of love and as, as cheesy as it sounds it's really what we do we we um, really strive for perfection what we do we want customers to be happy um, we both have our own visions about what we want there and we kind of go, come together and make something and we make it really great and I think our customers have really enjoyed it we've been open two years now and um, we've gotten great feedback for the most part so um, yeah, everything's everything's really great. We 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 seem like we're full-fledged dessert place. We have a good variety of stuff: frozen treats, cakes, macarons, French tarts, um, coffee. You know, we're just trying to still expand, even though we have a small space there. I think we have a really good amount of selection. So, if people come in, what would you recommend that they try first? If they're discovering we desserts, they're like, I'm kind of snackish. I want something to munch on, something delicious, and they're coming in for the first time. What would you recommend they try at we? If you're saying snackish, I would say go for the Go for the French macarons, which is something I actually make. It's my specialty. Um, they were actually number two, voted number two in Houston by the Houston Press mm. around the time we opened, which was like March 2014. Um, and have they gotten better since then? I think they've gotten better, yeah. Like, I mean, you know, just with my practice going on, you know, making them every time. And, um, you know, the weather's kind of funny, and I've dealt with that issue but uh you know we have a great deal on them too if you buy a dozen or more they're only a dollar a piece you can buy up to four dozen in the store we have uh 15 flavors now the most recent one being peanut butter and jelly really so um, interesting the most popular ones are salted caramel and pistachio which i actually ground up fresh pistachios for that one and the salted caramel gets salt uh, salted caramel uh, cam- uh, salt sprinkled on each shell you, you said it and i heard it is it macaron macaroon i feel like an idiot because uh, i say no, it all the time it's a french word so it's macaron. macaron a lot of people say macaroon we we don't ever correct uh customers when they come in because we know what they're talking about because when someone says macaroon with two o's it means actually a coconut cookie right yeah it's uh it's basically just coconut with condensed milk egg whites in a mound and it's very delicious, but that's not what we have there. Ours is made with um, ground almonds, powdered sugar, and it's basically a meringue mixed into those things and piped. And, and it then, sounds simple, but it's not. It takes a lot of practice. It's a, a delicacy, really. And it's delicious, too. So we uh, basically, you don't correct customers even when they're wrong. So really a place where the customer is always right. So certainly. Yeah, they're uh, we, buying cookies from us. We're not going to complain, you know. <laughs> so go buy We Desserts, 3411 Kirby. Uh, Penny and Jen, of course, they both joined us now on the show. You can say hi. Say you heard them on the Weekly Brew Podcast. And get 10% off of your order when you go. And we certainly recommend you do that. Thanks to Jen from We Desserts stopping by the studios here on Sunday morning. And we just want to encourage you to go to We Desserts at 3411 Kirby and get 10% off just by mentioning the Weekly Brew. And as always, it's that time of show. Kevin, what time is it? We got reviews, and we got more than the normal amount. There were four reviews that came in this week. So um, absolutely terrific.
terrific job by the listeners. I could not be more pleased here. We had Natalie F. said, great. Brittany NZE, great as well. And Houston Lover, 101010. I'm not sure what the 101010 thing means. We've seen it a couple times now. Ray, 101010, who knows? Awesome podcast, she says. I appreciate that. And there's one odd one. Uh, from Kevin Pumpkin's Kittens Candy is the name of the reviewer. My boyfriend makes me listen to lots of podcasts when we're driving, and I'm usually super annoyed, but this one is, is an unexpected exception. The moment I heard Kevin's voice, that mix of peppery baritone and conservative cynicism touched my very soul. I could listen to him all day. I celebrate his entire catalog, which is a hilarious Office Space reference. Austin and Jeremy are okay. I agree. Um, so that's a terrific review. I think somebody's putting me on, but that's fine. You can put me on the reviews. I will read anything you put up there. It's like the teleprompter in Anchorman. If you put it up there, I will read it on the show. So take advantage of that. Go to iTunes. Leave us a five-star review. We're almost to 50 now, which is great. Uh, we're looking for more. I am actually just going to go ahead and assume that you wrote that review. <laughs> I did not. <laughs> I actually did not. That actually but, sounds exactly like something you would write, yeah, Kevin. But, I swear I didn't. Thanks to those people that uh, submitted reviews this week on iTunes. We just encourage you to go to iTunes and leave a review yourself. Tell us what you like. Tell us uh, show ideas, interviews that you would like to hear. And uh, also, if you want to connect with us, you can check us out on social media. Just search Weekly Brewcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. You can also subscribe to our website, weeklybrewcast.com. We post all of the content there each Monday, and it's pushed right to your inbox. So highly recommend that. Or but, you can hit me up on Twitter, at kmichaelcook, and I'll direct you to the show's content content myself. But again, we had a fun episode today. Thanks again to Mike Meltzer, Seth Payne, and Angel Verdejo for joining us on the podcast. We hope you enjoyed the content. I know I did. And for my co-hosts this week, Kevin Cook, Jeremy Paxson, and Laura Cesano, my name is Austin Statton. We'll see you next week. And to all the listeners, remember, no matter who you are, where you go, or what you do this week, always, always brew responsibly. You've been listening to The Weekly Brew. 